Uh, I thought we'd just do a podcast and that way uh, it can just, uh, we can share your answers and questions with the, the developer community. So, uh, sure. Sounds great. Anyway, it's been a little while since I've talked to you. Um, I yeah, know I think you've it's done been like two or three years, hasn't it? Actually, it's amazing. It's been that long. I've got yeah. had like about six hundred different podcasts or so. Got quite a bit, but I've noticed like five hundred now. And wow. uh, yeah, and one thing I've I've been finding is, you know, it's been a, with this machine learning, is the more you learn, like uh, the more specific you get into the technology, the more isolated you get. I mean, you understand how the technology works, but then trying to communicate it, there's less and less people that understand it. They're more, they're more apt to understand things like um, generalized algorithms that everyone's trying to learn for the first time, like uh, random force or something like that. But when you talk about LSTM networks and uh, recurrent recurrent networks, you have less of a population that knows about those technologies, and most of them are in the financial sector. So that gets even smaller groups. So it kind of seems like there's no one that's really doing machine learning, even though it's being marketed uh, that everyone's moving there. It just seems like when you're trying to communicate it, it there's less and less people that actually understand what you're talking about. In fact, I have a, a friend, I, I talk about a lot about machine learning, and he did a random forest and an XG boost on trying to predict bid, whether there was going to be a bid program uh, was going to be accepted or not. And I said to him, why didn't you use deep learning? And or LSTM networks, you know, because of the advantage of those those type of networks. And he's at a PhD level, and he really didn't know how to do that. He knew how to do random forests and XGBoost, but he hadn't done a lot of work in deep learning. So um, that was an area <laughs> that he couldn't really explain to the business, and so he didn't do it. So it's interesting, even though we're, we're, we have all this new technology, we still stick with the stuff that people can understand. Okay. That makes sense. Well, um, I wouldn't say that I'm deeply have deep knowledge of machine learning either. That would definitely not be true. Um, I'm definitely new to it compared to you in any way, (laughs) but uh, I am trying to, figure out a way of solving a problem for, for a class I'm in. And it was, um, well, let me just explain to you what the problem I'm trying to solve is and how I wanted, how I wanted to solve it and how where I'm at now in terms of using an, an AI and myself to help solve it. So one of the problems I came across in the past was a form of technical debt formed by lack of documentation. So you know how when developers don't uh, comment on their code uh, or document on the architecture of it, how it saves time in the short run, but in the long run, they kind of pay for it. Sure. And I thought if they don't want to, 
why can't I? And that way I would help get rid of that, that debt. I would solve a problem that way. And my initial idea wasn't very sophisticated. It was just share your repository with me and I will comment on your functions and classes and map out your architecture and then push back to Git. Uh, GitHub, I mean. And uh, that didn't seem to appeal. And I talked to a friend the other night and he was talking about artificial intelligence and uh, how it was being used in some ways to help clean up code. And I looked up online to see if there was actually AI that would comment someone's code for them. And there was uh, a few in, a few examples of it. And I re but it wasn't as good as I had hoped it would be when I read the examples. It wasn't like very clear. And I realized it could still be halfway. Um, the AI could maybe get me 30 to 50% there and then I could make up the rest of it my human brain and I wanted to get your thoughts on that and how if you thought that was a good idea maybe to adjust the idea because like the friend did for me he helped me realize that it didn't have to be all me or a machine it could be half and half that's yeah. why you grip it on that yeah I <clears throat> that was actually an area that I've been uh, starting to explore even in the company I'm setting up which is uh, assist, code assistant and there is a number of <clears throat> AIs <clears throat> that are now starting to become code assistants. Microsoft is looking at one where it's learned from Stack Overflow. Um, so as you're, you're coding, um, it can refactor your code just like uh, refactor can refactor your code um, but also one of the things that it can do is explain the code which is something that we haven't had in the past we've had to learn the language um, we've had to learn things like abstract class virtual functions pure virtual functions we've had to think about okay why would you use a pure virtual function well because you're you have these derived classes that you may want to have those definitions forced to be defined in the derived class or the subclass. And why do we do that? Well, because we want to have polymorphisms. We don't want, we want to have these classes that are expandable. Okay. So that's wonderful. Those are the objectives, but it creates this uh, very complex layering. So you have abstract class derived class, maybe even another drive class from the drive class. And it's hard to understand, but the objective was to um, create flexibility for business. So when you come in to look at code like that, it's not easy to understand why you have interface classes and there's lots of them. Like why did they take uh, maybe 20 different interfaces and put them in a concatenated list? And you look at it and you're going, it doesn't make sense. You know, what were they trying to do? Well, they were taking bits and pieces of each one of the interfaces, which were uh, basically contracts, and they're composing, compositing those together to form a certain level of functionality. So they're basically doing reusability, but it's difficult to read. And 
what uh, what the AI does is it looks at the code and then it has a neural machinery that it's been trained on in the past and it's looking for probabilities of what the next line of code will be and what they have done also and that's for code generation and what they've also done is they've done generative text so they've created a mapping where they've said okay let's show the ai a lot of different code samples and for each one of these code samples we're going to give it a descriptive text and so it it, it can take some code and it then can generate text in natural language of what the code's doing. So like, for example, a bubble sort, you take a simple bubble sort and um, you're doing swapping uh, through the, the list and exchanging the larger value for the smaller value. So it then would say, um, this code is a bubble sort and a bubble sort exchanges the previous value with the current value if it's larger. So it can kind of like do this natural language processing reversal. And there's some value to that. Um, it, there, I don't, the AI is pretty good at hard problems because it can't differentiate between an easy problem and a hard problem. It doesn't do that. Like we can differentiate and say, oh, that's a hard problem. That'll take me a week to understand that. AI doesn't think that way it's all based on probability. So if it had been trained on that pattern and it could figure out the probability of an explanation, it'll do it. So that's one of the values of AI that, that uh, is starting to be recognized is that hard problems are almost instantaneously solved by it. At the same time, hard, easy problems, because uh, it doesn't differentiate between the two, can sometimes be uh, nonsense. And the reason I, I point that out is uh, with, uh, I've imp implemented uh, GPT-3 on my website. And when I ask it an easy question, like uh, what, happened, what happened in Japan after the earthquake, uh, it can give me a very good answer. But if I ask it a question like, um, uh, what should I eat for dinner tomorrow? It might give me a bunch of garbage. And, okay. and so that's the, so what I'm saying is the more specific is how you ask or present to the AI the problem that matters. Because what it's trying to do is calculate the probability path to the answer. And so if it finds a signal, you're going to get a good answer and you're going to look at it and go, wow, I think that's right. Okay, so I'll give you an example of how I've used uh, uh, OpenAI Codex. Uh, that's a, a new thing from Google is they have a section for Python. So I answer some Stack Overflow questions and I basically I give it, the beginning of the function that I'm trying to, like the data that I'm trying to follow. And I'll just say, code me a function 
that this uh, let's see think one um okay code me a function that will group this pandas data frame by customer and show me all articles um that are spanning over a seven day window see that's a pretty hard question yeah take a little bit it'll take a little bit of time to to write that out in, in python well you'd have to do your group by and then you would do a window but then you may not know about a function called grouper see grouper is not is a really advanced idea but then you can do grouper and then you can set the sampling at a certain uh, day window and then it will take all those articles uh, in the article column and then group them together by the customer as it spans over a seven-day window like a resampling problem. So it sounds like you're talking about is that an AI that actually tells you what what kind of function or code to create. It will actually uh, create the code. So in this actually, case, it actually, it actually it. created the code. So then you, you get a function, and I say, you know, code of function. I told it natural language, code of function that can do this. So then it generated the code up, and you're looking at it and go, wow, I've never, I've, I know what, I know what group by does, but what is this grouper function? Because it's new to you. You know, it's, uh, it's not something, it was something that was built by um, pandas, but the larger group doesn't know about it because doing uh, window over data, grouping data is not a common task. So when I was when I was trying to solve this harder task on Stack Overflow, it found the path to using Grouper because at some point in Stack Overflow, there was a question out there among the millions of questions where someone has solved the, something similar to this using Grouper, and um, it found that in its neural machinery through probability, and then it used part of that as the solution because it had confirmed that it was an accepted solution so that it knew that that was a positive answer. And then it coded that out. So when I tried it, I was actually surprised that it worked. And, uh, and so then, then, you know, I guess my point to yours is it's useful here. The AI came up with something I wasn't aware of and it was useful and so I was able to implement it. And then it was accepted by the, the group as a solution too. So I got to check off on that. But and uh, do you think the reverse is, is, I mean, the reverse is also possible then. It can also read code written by someone else or even created by an AI and then tell you what that code was trying to do. Yeah. And that's where um, the reverse is also true. It's called, uh, they call this in, in, um, sequence to sequence programming so what sequence to sequence does is it takes an input and then it has an output and it has a learning layer and so it it you can take like say for example you can take millions of lines of code and or even billions and feed them in to the inputs as a sequence. Then in that 
learning layer, it uh, builds the probabilities of each sequence to an output sequence. So that, they call that encoder to decoder. And then when you feed it a thought vector in the decoder in the second stage, when you're actually trying to get an answer, it actually takes quite a while for and a lot of computational cycles to do this. But when you feed the uh, uh, a seed thought into the decoder, it then will get <clears throat> gen generate text for you. Okay, so in so that's terms what it's of really doing in AI, it's just, it's just kind of it's generating a text, and then you look at that text and you say, okay. Did it, is it accurate? Because the problem is, is you're, you're either going to get noise coming back where it's uh, kind of like it doesn't know how to answer the question, but it, rather than say, I don't know, it starts to repeat itself. And it does that until it hits uh, a end of statement token. And at and that, that point, that's, then it why the, that's why the AI is imperfect. It, if if it was possible for this for, for the AI to do it perfectly, if it was at that point right now, then my idea for the for a business to solve that thought problem would be pointless. Uh, an AI could just completely do it. Right. But there is a balance between the two. I, my brain can do things that AI would struggle with. Like absolutely, it would uh like the easy problems you're talking about. It may do great with a hard one, but it may have a difficult one with very simple one. Just so, because it has a bigger uh, it has a bigger catalog of uh, inputs that it was trained on. I mean, you and I don't go through million problems on Stack Overflow to learn every possible nuance of a language. We, right. we, we so, go the more, through... so the more complex it is, the more inputs it has, the more inputs it has, the more likely it will find out what the what the actual purpose of a function or a class was. Yes. Whereas where if it was very small, then maybe it's obvious to me, but not, not to the AI. Right. Well, that, that's just kind of the, the beginning level. One of the things that uh, Google is starting to do that's kind of interesting is um, what they, they call uh, GAN networks. I don't know if you've heard about that, but they're kind of, there are two machines and one machine is presenting information to the other. And it's kind of like how they um, did go where alpha go, where one machine is trying to beat the other machine and the other machine is learning from it. So I haven't heard of anything where they've tried this with code. But I could see where a machine could take, like, for example, could take a requirement spec and then begin to generate code. And another machine could run against that code to see if it, it could break the function, just like almost like a unit test or a mock-up. And it would try to present cases where it could find an error then the it would discover the error it would then feed that input into the other machine the other machine then would refactor the code and then try to 
iteratively, almost like a reinforcement learning, go through many cycles of code generation until it found the code that worked. So in uh, terms of a business, do you think like a, like a human being working with an AI uh, commenting old code, like legacy code would be a good business idea, you think? Yeah, I, I it, see, I'm going to go back to one of my um, podcasts that I, I did on that, that very question, which is how did the Japanese enter into the automobile market? Well, they found, they actually designed something, a car that was fantastic engineering. Um, one of the salesmen told me that for Toyota in the 1960s, they had developed a three-cylinder car. And that three-cylinder car could get 70 miles to a gallon. Wow. That'd be and it would last forever. <laughs> and it would last forever, too. And, uh, and so what they did is they, they, they utilized this advanced engineering, even though it was perceived to be cheap cars, you know, from Japan, they, they, they were implementing these advanced technology ideas early. They even in the, uh, let's say for the radio transistor, they were introducing these cheap radio products. You know, they, they didn't sound really great compared to today's radios, but they were cheap. And people said, well, it's good enough. And they started to, to use them. Immediately, what happened was as soon as there was a market created, competition flowed in. So what will happen is you start this idea with, let's say, a code that, you know, technical debt that's hard, that can't be used really because there's no documentation. And you can find some AI that you subscribe to or use, and it helps you do even let's say 10% of your work, 35 might be really too generous. Let's say it does 10%, but the 10% that it helps you, it really saves you a lot of time. Let's say it saves you 20 hours. Right. Because it, it can at least do the very complex stuff. The one that provides lots of input. Right. Either the really complex stuff or it gets you on the right path. You know, because you're you're it it you're right. It doesn't do anything like abstract thought like we do. It doesn't do any creative thought. It's all based on math probability. But let's say it puts you in the right direction. Right, exactly. Then it's worth it. So I I really think what'll happen is, and I think a lot of these software companies like Microsoft and Google and Amazon, they all know that their APIs are enormous. I mean, you go out to. Uh, Amazon, for example, and you try to use um, Boto. It has a very simple interface, but underneath all of that infrastructure, there's API after API after API. I mean, literally when I was looking on their documentation site, there was almost like no end. You kept scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. I mean, there was just so many. And how could you, and they're well documented. Each one of those doc, APIs are documented. So then you have use, usage cases 
that you go through to figure out a path. And then they, you know, you go through data camp or something like that, and they'll show you how to, to set up a simple pathway. And then once you have that simple pathway to usage, it's good enough. I think that's what AI will do for you for documentation is it will, some of it is going to be kind of like, how do I get a simple path through this complexity? And then once you get that simple path, then you got something useful. And the second thing was once people realize that you can do this with technical debt, uh, there'll be a lot of companies that say, Hey, that guy's got a business model. He's got some customers. Then either they will want to compete against you, but, and that's a good thing. But the, the issue will be at that point as they compete, they don't necessarily know how you did it. Right. But it's also kind of a good thing. It is a good thing because if they're competing with me, it means I actually found a good market for something. I found a niche to fill. So that, and I've been hearing um, what, what I've been told is I may not want to go after a large company first. What I would want to go is maybe a very small company, um, just small to medium sized companies, maybe not even software companies, but companies who still use software developers and then help them with their legacy code, help their developers document old, their old, uh, their old legacy base and, and get all, and get the comments, the architectural uh, documentation done and use case scenarios mapped out. And then uh once I established myself as yes, this actually solves that debt. This helps prevent that from happening, or at least solves it after it's happened. Then I can work my way up from there. So my my goal is just to start up very small, find someone who's just willing to let maybe a nonprofit, maybe do it for free for a charity organization for their very first project. Establish how much time it actually will save developers, how much benefit there is, and then go from there and i what is that sound like a good plan do you think yeah i actually like it yeah it uh. could it, it could work um again i my my goal if i were doing this strategy because i'm i'm actually my goal is not to reduce technical debt my goal is to plug in ai and ml using existing frameworks now i know i can build my own pipeline and and that that level of craftsmanship but i the problem is is time you're in a race you know and these guys that have built this code were in a race and you pointed that out early they they elected not to do the documentation and the design documentation because it took time and so right. now, it, now they're kind of paying for it. That that it's, it's kind of from the the interest is now is now gathered up on that. Right. And so you're the guy that's coming in and saying, let's refinance this a little bit and let's look at trying to create a manageable course that you can now survive over long term. Because you, you're right. It, they'll just leave it there. If it works, we'll just leave it there. And you hear that in a lot of companies. Well, it just works. We don't want to touch it. But then when someone new comes in, like a new manager, 
they want to understand. They want to understand where all their risk points are, but they don't want to pay for it. And so what they do is they say to some developer, uh, tell me how this, this works. The developer goes, I don't know. Wasn't documented. <laughs> yeah. And I've, act, I mean, one of the things I've noticed is that I mean, developers get paid, you get all that time you spend training to help you figure out what they did is money that's being spent, that's being lost. That's kind of, it's literally interest that, that that's, that's financial in this case, that's just technical. So yeah, that, I think that big was companies would really actually going back to your question between the smaller or big company. I think the strategy would be the big company, and the reason why I would say big companies is um, big companies actually are a set of a lot of small companies, and the problem is is even in their system when if when you go in it's so difficult to understand um i know i went into this fortune 100 company and they had so many different modules and it was i'd walk by the wall this down the wall uh hallway and i one of this guy he had a, a chart on the wall and it was printed out and it covered a good section of the wall. And it was just nothing more than the database ERD diagram. And there was just hundreds of lines connected in that. And I was thinking, wow, navigation through that's got to be tough. But at least he had the documentation. Uh, so your idea, I think, for big companies would be, how do you explain, if you can get to this point, how do you explain something that could be an ERP size level. Well, it could be all different segmentations. Okay. And let's say that it, it by yourself, let's say it would take you, um, let's say it would take you 2000 hours to do the documentation because it's a big, big system, right? And you got to do all the visuals and the diagrams and all that stuff. Um, if you could reduce a, a, some of your workload down, let's say, let's say you could get to that 35% that you were saying, um, 35% for that documentation. And then let's say it was verifiable. It was accurate. Let's say, let's say you could get up to 90% accuracy. What value would that be to the company to be able to see that much? Well, some people would say, we don't want to pay for it. We just want to, you know, build microservices and we'll just, uh, we'll just work around the technical deck. We'll just keep building and plugging microservices into it and, and keep, you know, just transforming this company. Other companies would say, no, we want to know what our technical debt is and we want to understand what's going on in there because that drives critical business process and that's important to us. Those are the companies you want because those yeah, are the companies that need Yeah, I actually was reading about this exact issue. It was called endowment. It's a 
it's not, it was a it was about human uh behavior but it's um basically was if it doesn't hurt a lot right now then they won't fix it but then someone they said the solution to that was called surfacing the cost as uh, letting them know um how much it, was, it really was costing them like the example given to me was a guy who wrote down his email signature for every email instead of just reading, use instead of setting it up automatically on his account and the way they convinced him was saying okay so it takes you two seconds to write down your signature instead of you know just two or three minutes to uh go into settings and figuring it out it says multiply that by how many emails you send every week and then multiply that by 50 weeks and then what it was is they said this is how many hours you're spending every year writing out your email signature. Whereas you could just spend two or three minutes right now figuring it out, set it up, and never do it again. And they managed to convince them that way. So the trick, I think, for me will be to establish, I have to show them how much this really is costing them. And that is one of the reasons I need to start, I think, small. I do want to get, I think you're right. The companies that have amassed the largest ethical debt will be probably the customers I want to serve the most. But in the beginning, I do need to establish how to calculate that technical debt into dollars and cents so that I have my essentially uh, a sales pitch. Yeah. I, I think your strategy is good. Uh, it'll just be that uh, it'll, it'll just be that you'll migrate eventually to the big company once you built the technology, because they they're going to be the one with the most technical debt, and they're going to be the ones with the critical processes uh, that they're willing to pay the money to get documented. Yeah, exactly. I I, I know like a a a two or three year old company won't have too much debt, but like the ones that have been around since like the nineties, they'll it'll be huge at this point. Yeah. You know, the ones that uh, will be the prime candidates will be the medium sized companies. Uh, and the reason I say that they're going from medium sized to large because they don't have process in place. In other words, they they had a, a group of developers built their code quick. The code worked. They got customers. Now they've got to move to the next layer, which is scale. So they're like, okay, we need to understand these processes because we need to scale this up to cloud, or we need to uh, we need to move off of our server base and move to um, Docker or something. But even in that, you've got containers worth of code that no one understands, and they just push that over and say, well, it just works. We don't really know what it does, but you know, here's the parameters and they may not even understand the parameters. Uh, so having that documentation could be super valuable, but I would say that that group would be kind of the, your, your prime target because they, they are also now faced with process and they're like, okay, who are going to have do all this documentation? And, you know, they turn to their programmers and say, we need this document and programmers goes, okay, well, I've got a whole bunch of stuff I'm doing. Why do I want to be all of a sudden now a, an analyst when I'm a programmer? I don't want to be an analyst. I want to be a programmer. Yeah, and that's actually one of the things I, th I found out is pro 
one of the reasons it's not just it, it's a big part of it is time you're right they a lot of them programmers will just say it works it's good enough for me let's move on a lot a big part of it is also they really hate doing it it, yeah. it, it surprised me because i'm one of the few i'm the I only know of a handful of programmers, including myself, who actually have a computer science degree and an English degree. Whenever I told someone that, they gave me a weird look because that's pretty unusual. So, but I actually enjoyed writing. I actually enjoyed writing writing out the documentation, commenting on what I'm doing, so that I can remember what I was doing. And so I figured, why not do something I enjoy doing that they don't like doing, and maybe get paid for it. Yeah, and so I would say use as many tools as you can, uh, open source AI tools. You know, definitely look, watch these AI tools, and I'll I'll, I'll feed uh, some of them to you um, because I'm actually thinking along somewhat along this line with Code Assistant. Is there there is now AI that uh, you can go to a board, for example, with a UI, and you can draw out what you want and it will code generate the javascript for you okay that's just javascript but they're they're looking at that for you know rapid development and the there's also um, gpt3 can take javascript code from one language you can map that over into another so there's this you know you might start off let's say in documentation and design but then you might find that there's this market niche called COBOL and they've got a lot of COBOL out there and they're trying to figure out, Hey, how am I going to move this thing from COBOL into Python or COBOL into C uh-huh. or, or Java or something, you know? Yeah. I see you're talking about. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I basically the friend I talked to the other day, he said, I'm on to something. So I am still figuring that out, but I, you gave me some new ideas too. It's not, it's more than just writing down what someone did and yeah. putting it into the slashes and the asterisk to show what they did on a comment. It's also showing, it's also maybe helping them to grow from a, yeah. a meaningful company to a larger company or going from an older language to a newer language or just reducing huge amounts of technical debt. As I learn more about this, I am going to find out where the basically the biggest need is and where the best opportunities are. Yeah, I, I think you're correct because I know that there are several companies that in survival mode did exactly what we you just described, but they put an of FTE on that and it was super painful for that FTE to do, but he, he went managed to do it. And now he's doing really well, but that's just one case example where a company realized early uh, the growing pains and then they needed to get off that technical debt because it w- it was um, holding back the business. And, and yeah. so where you, if you make that pr- presentation that, you know, moving from technical debt to the next generation, there's a huge demand for that. In fact, I think what you're going to find is they're dying out there uh, and they just don't know it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like a person, it, it's like literally like, like uh, financial debt is people use their credit cards all the time. They pay the minimum balance 
And then they find out, why am I $10,000 in debt a few years later? Yeah. Yeah, well, good luck, Matt. There's, I think you're, you know, you're on to something. Too bad. Uh, are you still going to pursue anything in Unity or, or uh, along those lines? Unity kind of stayed a fun hobby. Um, I, I enjoy it. I still have my VR equipment. It's just it didn't work out the way I thought it would. And I decided to try something new. And Okay. Yeah, uh, I mean, I good. Yeah, I mean, I liked it. I'm excited about this problem. I'm excited to solve it, and who knows if someday I become worth 100 million dollars and start my own VR game company. I don't know. <laughs> you know, that's something to, to consider too. Is use this as a stepping stone or stepping board. Uh, you know, it's like building a solving a hard problem requires a lot of belief and hard work, but when you solve it, then all of a sudden you're really glad that you did. Yeah. Uh, just because, you know, just like with the VR, I, I went down to VR one and just all, everything we talked about, uh, about the animation problems, man, I had to have a guy helping me through everything. I mean, he was like practically moving my hand around to figure out how to do the navigation and, it was so non-intuitive. The, fu- the funnest part I had was fighting uh, Mr. T. That was the best. Because then I could just sit there and box with the guy. But the, prob- <laughs> the problem with the VR is I was throwing these punches. But I would do it like the way I thought it should be. And the, the guy finally told me, he says, no, just, just put your hands up and just start throwing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth like that as fast as you can. And that's the way you do it. <laughs> So, no, I understand you're talking. I remember my first my first experience with with the, with the old Oculus DK2. I was trying to throw these fire and ice balls, and I say about half the time I wasn't throwing anything, so it took some yeah. practice. It was a lot of fun. My daughter said, "You got to go to." She took me down to there and for her birthday. You know, I swear we 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 spent half the time, and they gave us a discount too because so we spent half the time waiting for their systems to boot up and to get into the game because they had all these setups that had to be done. And then when you got in there, it was all menu driven instead of voice activated and stuff or gesture based. It was all menu driven. So you had to go over and touch this menu, touch this item. And I guess they figured that you would know that automatically to be able to do that. And so there was a lot of time where we were just trying to get into the game but when we got into it, it was kind of fun, but we couldn't even get out of, we were playing Star Trek and we couldn't even get out of the port. <laughs> so we're getting charged by the, you know, bid it. And there's this kid, he was yelling, hey, do this, do this, Spock. And we're like, oh, I don't know what, what to do. <laughs> Are you, were you talking about Star Trek Bridge Bridge Crew? Yeah. Oh yeah, I have that game. Yeah, I, I, I get what you're talking about. So, but yeah, I... It's still fun. I still enjoy it. I just, I wanted to try this because I really thought that it would solve a problem that I've noticed and I'm uniquely equipped to help solve it, I think, just because of my own skill set. Yeah, definitely. I think you've got a, a good plan. Yes, definitely. Awesome. Well, thank you. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate you answering my questions. Okay, thanks.
Have a good one. Bye. Talk to you later.